Okay, uh, today we're going to talk about a book. Uh, let's see here. Waiting for the Barbarians by J.M. Coetzee. This book was written in 1980. Um, and it's a short little thing, just 150 pages. And yeah, it has, it's rich in themes, discussions of colonialism and imperialism. And it's a, it's a very affecting work, so we're going, to, we're going to talk about it. The book opens. Page one. I have never seen anything like it. Two little discs of glass suspended in front of his eyes in loops of wire. Is he blind? I could understand it if he wanted to hide blind eyes, but he is not blind. The discs are dark. They look opaque from the outside, but he can see through them. He tells me they are a new invention. Okay? So that is the opening scene. The opening observation of our unnamed protagonist, unnamed magistrate um, in a settlement. He operates uh, governing a settlement of the empire, and he gets visited by Colonel Jahl. And General, Colonel Jahl is a, a military man from the empire, and he, he comes to round up um, barbarians. Barbarians, of course, are the natives, are the indigenous people uh, on this land. And uh, he's beginning this, this project of, you know, trying to protect the empire against these dangerous barbarians. And, of course, um, our unnamed narrator uh, is, is amazed at Colonel Jahl's uh, sunglasses. Our protagonist is, is horrified by Colonel Jahl's brutality. He's a, he's a bit of a sadist. Um, and he, he rounds up a bunch of these indigenous peoples. And he uh, starts to interrogate them. Um, our, our, our narrator uh, has no reason to be alarmed or concerned. He's, he's had only peaceful interactions so far with, the, with these, quote, barbarians. Um, but uh, Colonel Jahl feels otherwise. In the beginning of the book, he, our, our narrator sort of learns about what's, what Colonel Jahl is doing. You know, he says, before I go to bed, I take a lantern, cross the square, and circle through the back streets to the granary. There is a new guard at the door of the hut, another peasant boy wrapped in his blanket, asleep. The cricket stops its singing at my approach. The pulling of the bolt does not weaken the guard. I enter the hut, holding the lantern high, trespassing, I realize, on what has become holy or unholy ground, if there is any difference. Preserve of the mysteries of the state. He walks in on what's basically become a torture chamber, uh, and he gets all of a sudden this, this uh, confrontation with this war on terror, with this war on the, the hostile, you know, native population, um, you know, skipping ahead. And this is, this is sort of the, his, his understanding of, of what's, you know, going on right now in the empire. Um, last year, stories began to reach us from the capital of un unrest among the barbarians. You know, traders traveling safe routes had been attacked and plundered. You know, there's terror attacks. Uh, stock thefts had increased in scale and audacity. A party of census officials had disappeared and been found buried in shallow graves. Shots had been fired at a provincial governor during a tour of inspection. There had been clashes with border patrols. The barbarian tribes were arming, the rumor went. The empire should take precautionary measures, for there would certainly be war. And what this book is about, ultimately, is the power of a war footing, the power of, you know, war on terror, um, the power of the fear, you know, um, 
No man, there's no woman living along the frontier who has not dreamed of a dark barbarian hand coming from under the bed to grip her ankle. No man who has not frightened himself with visions of barbarians carousing in his home, breaking the plates, setting fire to the curtains, raping his daughters. You know, and then our narrator, narrator says his perspective, which is that these dreams are the consequence of too much ease, right? Show me a barbarian army and I will believe. And that's the juxtaposition. That's the tension that animates this book and animates much of politics when it comes to security and national security and the war on terror. On the one hand is fear. On the one hand is real fear. On the one hand are our attacks, our terror attacks, um, are, are real uh, examples of violence. Um, and, and that's used to justify a war on terror. That's used to justify a war against the outsider uh, for, for very, very understandable reasons, you know. Um, but our, our narrator is a little more skeptical. He's not, he doesn't buy into that hype. He's not as afraid. You know, he says, these dreams are the consequence of too much ease, you know. He says, when you're, when you're living comfortably in your homes, you know, on, on the empire, in the empire, on the frontier, uh, surrounded by people who are outside, outsiders, different than you, yeah, there's going to be uh, this, 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 these anxieties, you know? And that's the tension. One of the things that I think is so powerful about the book um, is the way in which our unnamed narrator sort of falls into his position of being, you might say, anti-colonial, to use our you know, modern terminology. Um, he doesn't buy in to this, this fear-mongering. He doesn't buy into this war and terror. And it's not because of any moral superiority, you know? There's nothing in the book that indicates our narrator is uh, a particularly philosophically minded, morally uh, concerned person. You know, he, he engages um, in the kind of, you know, behaviors that, uh, you know, his, his, everyone in his society engages in. Um, he, he basically takes a barbarian woman as a mistress uh, and, you know, rapes her. Um, he's not, he's, he's just not, that's to say he's not, he's not morally evolved in some sense. He's no Dalai Lama, but um, he just, he just lacks a certain level of fear, a certain level of anxiety. And that's it. And, that, and that, that's all, that's all that happens, you know. And uh, he's going to observe, he's going to see what happens as the empire takes on this war footing, as the empire goes to war uh, and, and tries to protect itself against this dangerous outsider. And uh, what we see immediately in the book from the very beginning and as a thread throughout the book is uh, torture. Um, the, the weapon, the power of torture, torture, torture. Um, horrible things uh, are, are described. Horrible things are, are done to, to these, you know, captured barbarians trying to extract from them knowledge, you know. Uh, tell us, uh, are you arming? Are you not arming? And, and Colonel Joel himself, who we met in the first page of the book, is, is quite uh, a sadistic uh, torture himself. Um, yeah, I mean, in, in the real world, yeah, torture comes up a lot. Um, this, this sort of pattern that's described in the book is, you know, you can find examples of it in, in many places. Uh, just this is example of, uh, this quote here about, you know, no woman living along the frontier has not dreamed of a dark barbarian hand coming from under the bed to grip her ankle. Uh, reminds me of, you know, some, some stuff I read from, um, Dr. Gerald Horn, you know, talking about the counter-revolution of 1776, talking about uh, the history of slavery in America. And uh, one of the things I learned in reading that book, which I hadn't 
previously thought about was how so much of slavery and the brutality of slavery was motivated by this fear of the slave, how every slave owner dreamed of the slaves uprising and, and the slaves coming in the middle of the night and, and raping their women, you know. And so much of the brutality of, 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 of slavery as we know it um, is, is um, meaning the brutality of the slave owners towards the slaves, is the flip side of that fear. Um, and, it's, and it's not just that, you know, America's war on terror, you know, we're going to talk more about that. You can, you can read America's uh, mass incarceration through this lens. It's, it's a lens, which is a very powerful lens um, that I think this book explores and we're going to continue to explore. And it can be applied, I think, to a lot of different uh, elements, a lot of different uh, events in history. Again, we have an, a, a collection of these barbarians who are captives, and they're, they're living in this greenery, and, and they're sort of around this, the town, they're around the, the settlement. And uh, our neighbor describes that for a few days, the fisher folk, these, these prisoners, are a diversion with their strange gabbling, their vast appetites, their animal shamelessness, their volatile tempers. The soldiers lounge in doorways watching them making obscene comments about them which they do not understand, laughing. There are always children with their faces pressed to the bars of the gate. And from my window I stare down, invisible behind the glass. Okay? And then something happens, right? And this is, this is a key move. This is a key interrogation of human nature and human psychology, right? Then, altogether, we lose sympathy with them. The filth, the smell, the noise of their quality, quarreling. The coughing becomes too much. There's an ugly incident when a soldier tries to drag one of their women indoors, perhaps only in play, who knows, and is pelted with stones. A rumor begins to go the rounds that they are diseased, that they will bring an epidemic to the town. And this, and this continues. And this, this move, this transition, I think is such a critical, crucial element of, of human psychology. The way in which oppression and the, the symptoms of oppression uh, lead to more oppression. When, when people are living in conditions that are dehumanizing, uh, it is easy to dehumanize them in a vicious cycle. Um, and, and, and the consequence of this is that, again, torture, uh, cruelty, is, is sort of something baked into human society here, to our, our capabilities as human beings. It's almost a default, you know. The um, resistance to cruelty, resistance to this kind of uh, torture and, and, and dehumanization is, is almost um, the, the exception to the rule. Abu Ghraib, one of the places uh, where I, I first started thinking more and, and reading more about Abu Ghraib is from this wonderful book, uh, The Art of Cruelty by Maggie Nelson. Uh, a really wonderful book of nonfiction stuff related to aesthetics and art and cruelty and politics and Nietzsche and all these great themes. And, and she's a very incisive um, thinker, in my opinion. And, and she talks in the book uh, about the uh, example of Al-Jamadi in Abu Ghraib, um, who died after being subjected to, to you know, torture, she says here, you know, a form of torture known as a Palestinian hanging. Um, it's one of the many enhanced interrogation techniques approved by the Bush administration. One has one's arms shackled behind one's back, then affixed far above the torso. Uh, you can find pictures of all this on Wikipedia, of course, and, and much, much worse. Uh, when finally CIA interrogators removed his hood and lowered his body to the ground, blood came gushing out of his nose and mouth as if a faucet had been turned on. This kind of gruesome, brutal description is, is actually 
the kind of thing you'll find in Waiting for the Barbarians to some extent. You know, not not a Palestinian hanging per se, but but that that's the kind of cruelty and um, sadism that characterizes this project of interrogating the barbarians in the book. Um, and it's and it's universal in a sense, right? I mean, it's, it was characterized America's war on terror. Um, and if you read the origins of totalitarianism, and if you read, uh, she cites uh, Joseph, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness um, as an example of uh, European imperialism in Africa, also equally brutal, equally torturous, equally barbarous. Um, she talks about the, the cover-up, you know, and, and the pictures that the, that the guards, the American soldiers took at Abu Ghraib with the, the dead body, which is like a bludgeoned, horrific thing. And, and women, women took pictures, uh, meaning women guards, American women soldiers were part of this torture. So, um, you know, she, she explores sort of uh, what that meant, you know, uh, philosophically uh, to, to sort of see that. So um, for many for whom a female re- reclamation, reclamation of sadism provides no reason to rejoice. The photographs from Abu Ghraib depicting specialist Megan Ambul, private first class Lindy England, and specialist Sabrina Herman engaged in brutal acts of torture and sexual abuse were devastating. Writer Barbara Ehrenreich went so far as to claim that a certain kind of feminism, or perhaps I should say a certain kind of feminist naivety, died in Abu Ghraib. The feminist naivete she's referring to is the kind that saw men as perpetual perpetrators, women as a perpetual victims, and male sexual violence as the root of all injustice, and presumed that women were morally superior to men due to their lesser inclination towards cruelty and violence. All that was before, Enreich says, we had seen female sexual sadism in action. I'm reminded of a line from... Hanukh Levine, in, in his uh, amazing play, Torture, uh, sorry, Murder, the name of the play is Murder, Retzach. And in that play, uh, the, show, the show opens with uh, soldiers and a dead body. And the soldiers had killed this, this uh, you know, suspected terrorist. And the father shows up. And, and the father uh, is, is horrified. He can't, he can't bear to see his dead body. And he sees that the body was, was abused. The body was, uh, was, was you know, um, the soldiers tortured the boy. And, and just, you know, the whole, again, the whole, the whole play is, I love, you know, amazing. But, you know, one, one line that just, just always, you know, haunts me is the father says to the soldiers, you know, you, you, you took out his eye, you know, he says, how could you take out a boy's eye? You know, he says, if there's a scratch on your eye, if you have something in your eye, you can't, you can't do anything. You're, 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 it's, it's agony. It's so painful. A single scratch on an eye, but you, you took out the boy's eye. You know, um, how could you do that? And, and the implied answer is that we can do that. Human beings can do that. We are totally capable of doing that. And, and, the, and the mechanisms are related to fear. They're related to war and terror. They're related to ideas about the greater good. They're related to ideas of security and protecting ourselves. Um, and we can totally do that. And they're also related to the sense of uh, as people are dehumanized, as people's living conditions are are worse and worse, it becomes easier and easier to dehumanize and easier and easier to think of them less and less as being worthy of moral consideration. In the following pages, 
is is one of the powerful, one of the more, most powerful quotes in the book for me. And it's, um, again, it, there's a lot of beautiful quotes that I think really cut to the moral core of the book. And, and so our, our, our protagonist is, is really in an in a awful spot, in an awful spot. He knows what's happening. He sees this unjust cruelty, this wanton cruelty being perpetrated against the barbarians that he has no problem with. Um, and he can't do anything about it. His hands are tied. He can't, he can't tell Colonel Joel or anyone from the Empire that you know, this, he resists. or, or you know, what, What's he going to do? Um, eventually, uh, our, our, our protagonist narrator will end up in, in prison for his uh, you know, small amount of resistance. But he, he's nothing he can do. Um, and, and it leads him to feel extremely depressed. And, and this book is largely about that, the effect of, of that knowledge. You know, there's nothing he can do. But his empire is, is perpetrating cruelty. Um, and he can't do anything about it. It's being, it's being perpetrated in the name of a war on terror. Um, and, and he reflects on this experience. He interrogates this, this, this experience. He says, It is the knowledge of how contingent my unease is, how dependent on a baby that wails beneath my window one day and does not wail the next, that brings the worst shame to me, the greatest indifference to annihilation, right? It just, he can, he can, as long as he can tune it out, as long as he doesn't know, he's fine. But when he hears the baby wailing underneath his window, then he's affected. And this is a source of shame, you know? I know somewhat too much, right? I love this. It's, it's, it's sort of like this curse of knowledge, you know? It's not, um morality. It's not, you know, reasoning, philosophy. It's just, it's just a piece of knowledge that he has. And from this knowledge, once one has been, been infected, there seems to be no recovering. I ought never to have taken my lantern to see what was going on in the hut by the granary. Right? If only I just didn't know. It would be so much easier. If only I didn't know. On the other hand, there was no way once I had picked up the lantern for me to put it down again. The knot loops in upon itself. I cannot find the end. This very powerful poetic language of just being trapped, stuck in this state of knowledge that he can't escape. Once he picks up the lantern, once he follows that thread, once he becomes aware, he can't put it down again. And, and there's a sense in which there's this binary at play, you know, either you humanize or you don't humanize. Either you see the humanity in the people who are suffering and being tortured or you don't, you know. Um, if you're, if you're, if all your empathetic resources are, are dedicated or are applied towards uh, the people that you're trying to protect, uh, then there's no room left necessarily to uh, feel empathy for these people. And then, and then you're, and then your, you know, moral compass is sort of shut off. Your, your, your humanization resources is not available. Uh, or, or it is available, and then you see uh, the cruelty and the barbarity for what it is. And, and this, you know, this analogy, I think, is very, is very poignant of, you know, can you hear the baby that wails underneath the window or not? You know, how, how, how sensitive is your hearing? You know, do you, do you have the courage to look in the granary, in the hut, to see what's going on in the hut by the granary or not? You know, uh, it's, it's a big question. This is a scene where uh, things start to go worse for our uh, narrator. This is um, shortly before he's going to uh, end up in, in a lot of trouble for, for trying to, you know, uh, t 
talk to the barbarians, he, he ends up, a woman is left behind from the initial roundup of, of barbarian men and women and children. Um, she was tortured. She was blinded by uh, the torturers. Uh, she sort of becomes our, our narrator's mistress uh, to some extent. Um, he's not the only one who sleeps with her. And eventually he wants to take her back uh, and, and return her to the barbarians. Um, and, and that ends up uh, landing our narrator in prison for a while. Um, but this is, this is shortly before all that, where we have a confrontation which, between our narrator and, I believe, uh, Colonel Jahl, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and and he, he's, he's sitting down across the table, and, he, and, and they have a, this, this sort of, I think, critical confrontation. Um, the colonel says, I am more and more convinced, no, the colonel says, tell me, sir, in confidence, what are these barbarians dissatisfied about, right? Why are we have a terror problem? Why are they attacking us? You know, what do they want from us? I think this is our narrator, right? Our narrator says, what do they want from us? I ought to be cautious, but I am not. I ought to yawn, evade his question, end the evening, but I find myself rising to the bait. When will I learn to keep a cunning tongue? They want an end to the spread of settlements across their land. They want their land back, finally. They want to be free to move about with their flocks from pasture to pasture as they used to. It is not too late to put a stop to the lecture. Instead, I hear my voice rise in tone and abandon myself regretfully to the intoxication of anger. I will say nothing of the recent raids carried out on them quite without justification and followed by acts of wanton cruelty since the security of the empire was at stake, or so I am told. It will take years to patch up the damage done in those few days. But let that pass. Let me rather tell you what I find disheartening as an administrator, even in times of peace, even when border relations are good. There is a time in the year, you know, when the nomads visit us to trade. We'll go to any stall in the market during that time and see who gets short-weighted and cheated and shouted at and bullied. See who is forced to leave his womanfolk behind in the camp for fear they will be insulted by the soldiers. See who lies drunk in the gutter and see who kicks him where he lies. It is this contempt for the barbarians Contempt, which is shown by the meanest ostler or peasant farmer that I as magistrate have had to contend with for 20 years. How do you eradicate contempt? Especially when that contempt is founded on nothing more substantial than differences in table manners, variations in the structure of the eyelid. Shall I tell you what I sometimes wish? I wish that these barbarians would rise up and teach us a lesson so that we would learn to respect them, right? This is a crazy sentiment, right? I mean, this is not a very morally evolved thing to say, you know? If you ask uh, the Dalai Lama or you ask someone who's a, a moral uh, voice, they would say, you know, don't, you shouldn't wish for violence. You shouldn't wish for revenge. It's a very uh, base thing to wish for, but it's also very human, right? It's also very human. It's awful. It's human. You know, it reminds me of um, the, the Americans, uh, rooting for the North Vietnamese to kill American soldiers. You know, that was the same dynamic at play. We wish to see the barbarians rise up to teach us a lesson. You know? We think of the country here as ours, 
part of our empire, our outpost, our settlement, our market center. But these people, these barbarians don't think of it like that at all. We have been here more than a hundred years. We have reclaimed land from the desert and built irrigation works and planted fields and built solid homes and put a wall around our town. But they still think of us as visitors, transients. There are old folks alive among them who remember their parents telling them about this oasis as it once was, a well-shaded place by the side of the lake with plenty of grazing even in winter. That is how they still talk about it, perhaps how they still see it, as though not one spadeful of earth had been turned or one brick laid on top of another. They do not doubt that one of these days we will pack our carts and depart to wherever it was we came from that our buildings will become homes for mice and lizards, that their beasts will graze on these rich fields we have planted. You smile? Shall I tell you something? Anyway, this is a sort of uh, ambiguous uh, gesture he makes, the fact that, you know, the water grows more salty every year. It's becoming less and less inhabitable on this outpost. At this very moment, they are saying to themselves, be patient. One of these days, their crops will start withering from the salt. They will not be able to feed themselves. They will have to go. This is what they're thinking, that they will outlast us. And of course, what emerges is that there is no way to really communicate across this divide. I mean, uh, our, our narrator uh, regrets not keeping quiet because there's nothing he can say. You know, there's nothing he can say. Um, he just ends up uh, creating himself, uh, identifying himself, outing himself as like an enemy. You know, and he also ends up being treated with the, the barbarous uh, violence and, and, and cruelty of this anti-terror machine, this national security machine. Um, in this context, thinking of national security, the war on terror, I think it is crucial to think about America's Iraq war. Um, there are lessons from the Iraq war and Afghanistan war that I think we need to internalize. You know, we, we, we need, 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 need to internalize. Um, is because these incredibly expensive, brutal, deadly excursions, you know, that who knows what they accomplished, probably nothing, you know, just burning money, burning materials, wasting lives um, in, in these uh, long, long, endless wars uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and, and what is, you know, we, we have a, an obligation, I think, to just to learn something, you know, to try to investigate what that meant and what that was about. And, um, you know, so a wonderful book in this regard is The Forever War by Dexter Filkins. Let's try to find out where, what year it was written in. 2008. Okay, 2008. Um, oops. All right, let's, let's, let's take a look at some of the, uh, the lessons that, that we can learn, I think. Um, Dexter Filkins talks about, again, America's war on terror um, in Iraq. And we're introduced to this character, Nathan Sassman. Sassaman. Um, in the fall of 2003, Nathan Sassaman, then 40, was the most impressive American field commander in Iraq. Okay? He was witty, bright, and re relentless. The embodiment of the best that America could offer. You know, that's so important to, you know, use as context. We're talking about the all-American soldier hero. He was the son of a Methodist minister and a graduate of West Point. As the quarterback for Army's football team, he had led the school to its first bowl victory. When I met him, Sassaman was working day and night to make the American project in Iraq succeed. 
inspiring the 800 young men under his command to do the same. He slept in his boots, right? We're talking about the best America has to offer, the most courageous. He's, he's describing sort of the, the scene in Iraq with, with Sassaman, his, his, his work uh, policing Iraq, policing Iraq, searching for out terrorists. There were ugly moments and there were hopeful ones. And they made me wonder not only what the Americans were doing to Iraq, but what Iraq was doing to the Americans, right? This is key. The struggle for the country was mirrored in the hearts of the men. Sassaman himself sometimes seemed like two people, the visionary American officer setting up a city council and the warrior who took too much joy in the brutalities of his job. That's the duality, you know? That, that, that's the duality, the corruption, the internal corruption that happens when people try to prosecute a long-term occupation of a hostile population that doesn't want you there. It's like Jekyll and Hyde out here, Sassaman told me after the Ballad City Council meeting. By day, we are putting on a happy face. By night, we are hunting down and killing our enemies. So it describes that, you know, Sassaman is leading his battalion on house-to-house searches. Um, they'd been taking mortar fire from palm groves, and they're trying to figure out who's shooting mortars at them. It's, again, they're, they're in Iraq, they're trying to find terrorists, and, and, and because they're there, they they're have to find more terrorists. Who's shooting at them in Iraq? That morning, the battalion's men swept into Abu Shakur, and without warning, began to kick down doors. House after house, the soldiers poured in with their rifles, ready to shoot. They roused men from their beds and pulled them outside, many of them still in their pajamas and underwear, their wives and children looking on in horror. Get down and don't move, one of the soldiers growled at an Iraqi man. In a raid on a particularly large house, the soldiers dashed inside, pulling mattresses off bed frames and clothing from closets, throwing lamps and cushions onto the floor. The soldiers pulled 11 Iraqi men outside, forcing them to sit on their haunches with their hands behind their heads. As they crashed through the house, a young woman stood with three small girls, probably her daughters, each with her hands high in the air, the Americans found no weapons. The Iraqi men squatted outside for half an hour, the unhappiness etched on their faces. I feel bad for these people, I really do, Sergeant Eric Brown said to me, standing over the Iraqi men. It's so hard to separate the good from the bad, right? That's the problem. That's the problem with military occupations. That's the problem with the war on terror. It's so hard to separate the good from the bad. By mid-morning, Sassaman's battalion had searched 70 homes in Abu Shakur and questioned dozens of men, but netted not a single gun nor a single suspect. If you multiplied the raid in Abu Shakur a thousand times, it was not difficult to conclude that the war was being lost. However many Iraqis opposed them before the Americans came into the village, dozens and dozens more did by the time they left. The Americans were making enemies faster than they could kill them. Right? And this is the consequence of a war on terror. This is the consequence of military occupation. This is what played out in Iraq. The story doesn't end there. There's a coda, there's an epilogue to the story, which I think is, is crucial. Uh, again, in, in this military occupation, this policing project, there's a, there's a curfew. People have to be inside at a certain time. A group of Sassaman's men had been on patrol in Samara when they spotted a couple of Iraqis driving around past curfew. 
the soldiers stopped the men, who happened to be cousins, searched their truck, and found a heap of bathroom fixtures. They told the Iraqis to hurry home. Then, as the two men started to leave, the soldiers stopped them again. This time, the Americans cuffed the two Iraqis, whose names were Marwan and Zaydun, Fadil, put them in the hall of their Bradley, and took them to a spot on the Tigris, which is a river, of course. It was a dark and frigid January night. The soldiers motioned with their guns. Jump, they told them. Marwan and Zaydun resisted, even begged. Finally, they went into the water, and the Americans drove away. It was a dumb call, Sassaman said, nursing his coffee. Pushing people into the Tigris at night. Uh, sorry, pushing people into the Tigris at night, I now learned, was one of a number of punishments Sassaman's man, men had dreamed up to discipline the Iraqis, who had gone completely out of control. That is, discipline the Iraqis without killing them. They called it non-lethal force. Sassaman approved of some of the measures, disapproved of others. He claimed not to know about what his kids called getting people wet. Um... Right, Non-lethal force, it wasn't hard to understand. By the fall of 2003, the Sunni heartland was in open revolt. It wasn't just that the insurgents were killing American soldiers. It was, it was that the civilians were defying the Americans in every way they could. Right, That's the outcome of this occupation project. That's the outcome of policing a hostile population. Whenever Sassaman soldiers entered a village, children threw rocks, adult threw, adults threw rocks. People sometimes, entire villages, defied the curfew. When the Americans drove onto the street, the locals would give them the middle finger. They would drag their finger across their necks. If it didn't, right, if I didn't do anything, when a guy flipped me off, one of Sassaman's men told me in Colorado Springs, and the next time you drive around there, you're going to catch an RPG. We learned about Logan. Logan was the only American who acted with unquestioned honor. Logan, a low-ranking specialist from Indian Lake, Ohio, had been in the Bradley that night when his comrades spotted Marwan and Zaydun driving around after curfew. He'd helped cuff them, but when his lieutenant ordered him to throw Marwan and Zaydun into the Tigris, Logan refused, right? If I didn't make clear, one of them died. I think one survived, and I think the other one died. His body, you know, he drowned in the river. Uh, Logan refused. Logan's commander was angry with him, but he let him stay behind in the road. The other soldiers walked Marwan and Zaydun down to the riverbank. I found Logan in the living room of his girlfriend's home. She was at work and Logan was watching her two young, ch her two young children. The floor was covered in toys and papers and uneaten food. Logan was working day and night then, building houses and tending bar. Like Sassaman, he left the army too. Basically, the guys in the unit made it clear they didn't want me around anymore, Logan said. Two years later, after I returned to the United States, I decided to track Logan down. I had some difficulty at first. It turned out he had left Colorado Springs and gone back to his boyhood home in Indian Lake. His grandmother was dying, and Logan wanted to spend the last weeks with her. On the night of September 10, 2006, Logan walked into the lobby of the Comfort Inn Motel and robbed the attendant at knife point. Then Logan drove to his mother's home. He left the $4,000 he got from the hotel in a bag in the car. He didn't try to flee. He didn't hide the money. Three days later, a police officer came to the house, and Logan had gone to the same high school. Uh, to the house. He and Logan had gone to the same high school. Logan had been waiting for him. He confessed on the spot. He got two years in prison. His mother, Nancy, visits him twice a month. He's hoping to be a truck driver when he gets out. She told me she never heard about Marwan and Zaydun. I wonder every day if something happened to him while he was there, she said. Right? This is the cost. I mean, this is the, this is the legacy of wreckage. 
the legacy of disaster, policing a hostile population, creating enemies faster than you can kill them. It's awful. And the, and the, and the psychological toll on the soldiers. The way in which Iraq, it's not what America is doing to Iraq, it's what Iraq does to America. Our narrator in Waiting for the Barbarians ends up um, becoming a very critical of empire. And this is a, an oft-quoted line from the book, you know. Empire dooms itself to live in history and plot against history. One thought alone preoccupies the submerged mind of empire. How not to end how not to die, how to prolong its era. By day, it pursues its enemies. It is cunning and ruthless. It sends its bloodhounds everywhere. By night, it feeds on images of disaster, the sack of cities, the rape of populations, pyramids of bones, acres of desolation. Uh, a very powerful image from the end of the book Things is right at the end. Um, they, they there's just more restlessness. Uh, you know, Colonel Jaw sends out a, an expedition to to you know fend off, uh, find more barbarians, and they end up getting uh, lost, and they come back haggard, and and the empire's soldiers flee the outpost, and you know the people who are left there are you know are terrified, and and this, this sort of image which um is sort of captured in the in the cover image of the book is, you know, along the north rampart, we have propped a row of helmets with spears upright beside them. Every half hour, a child passes along the row, moving each helmet slightly. Thus do we hope to deceive the keen eye of the barbarians. Sort of a visual metaphor for that, that anxiety of empire that this book is so, uh, so fascinated with. There's one section I want to just, uh, read in closing which to me, again, is really cuts to the moral core of the book, really cuts to the heart of what this is about uh, and the heart of sort of what happened in this book, you know, uh, how this all unfolded. It's an incredible scene. 276. Uh, late in the book, our, our uh, narrator is getting interrogated because, um, again, this ongoing war and terror, this ongoing policing, this ongoing anxiety by the barbarians, uh, we know from earlier in the book that our narrator, administrator, uh, has found little relics of past barbarian uh, civilization, uh, pars you know, past barbarian uh, outposts, and, 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 and uh, you know, uh, he finds remnants of the writing system. He finds little pieces of paper where, uh, not, not necessarily paper, you know, scraps of wood um, with, with, with writing on them. And he collects these. He's fascinated by them. And he's interested in this culture and this writing system. And he tries to decode them, but he, he can't. He can't decode them. There's so many different symbols. He doesn't know what they mean, but he has a collection of them. And in this process of securing the empire, uh, Colonel Joel and others, they, they find our, our narrator's uh, collection of notes, you know. And so he's called in for questioning. Uh, 
Um, again, I stare into the black lenses. Again, the sunglasses of Colonel Joel, that visual image. You know, he goes on. A reasonable inference is that the wooden slips contain messages passed between yourself and other parties. We do not know when. It remains for you to explain what the messages say and who the other parties were, right? So at this point, uh, our, our narrator has been sort of identified as, as no friend of the, um, uh, you know, of, of, of the Empire security establishment, you know? He's seen as a threat. He's seen as an outsider. And as such, uh, he's being called in for questioning. And he says, you, you're clearly uh, in cahoots with the barbarians, right? Uh, so, so please read to us. Please explain this, this, uh, this script. So uh, he takes a slip from the chest and flicks it across the polished surface of the desk towards me. Uh, it looks, I look at the lines of characters written by a stranger long since dead, right? Of course, we know, as a narrator knows, narrator knows that these are not uh, words or, or language that he can decipher, and these are certainly not messages he's been sending. I do not even know whether to read from right to left or from left to right. In the long evenings I spent poring over my collection, I isolated over 400 different characters in the script, perhaps as many as 450. I have no idea what they stand for. Does each stand for a single thing, a circle for the sun, a triangle for a woman, a wave for a lake, or does a circle merely stand for circle, a triangle for triangle, a wave for wave? Does each sign represent a different state of the tongue, the lips, the throat, the lungs, as they combine in the uttering of some multifarious, unimaginable, extinct barbarian language? Or are my 400 characters nothing but scribal embellishments of an underlying repertory of 20 or 30 whose primitive forms I am too stupid to see. And so this is our narrator's answer to Colonel Joel sitting across the table. He sends a greeting to his daughter, I say. I hear with surprise the thick nasal voice that is now mine. My finger runs along the line of the characters from right to left, whom he says... He has not seen for a long time. He hopes she is happy and thriving. He hopes the lambing season was good. He has a gift for her, he says, which he will keep till he sees her again. He sends his love. It is not easy to read a signature. It could be simply your father, or it could be something else, a name, right? And that is, that is the moral core of the book. That, that's what this book is all about. You know, it's just, it's just the, in this moment of pressure, in this moment of being forced to defend himself and, 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 and make the case, make the case against the war and terror, right? Make the case against the oppression and the torture of these people. What's the case? The case is, it's a letter, it's greetings to his daughter. You know, it's just, they're, they're human beings just like us. Um, and when, when I think about this, I think in the context of like our, you know, social media, which is, and, and news, which, you know, makes the world in many ways so close and, and so instantaneous and, and live. But at the same time, uh, the, it doesn't, you know, it, we, we don't, we don't see, we often don't, we aren't privy to just the, the human, the private, the non, uh, the non, you know, social media posting aspect of the humanity of the people uh, that are so easy to dehumanize. Um, it's a very powerful moment. Uh, eventually, you know, Colonel Joel realizes that he's being toyed with, um, and he's, you know, not amused. Uh, this is towards the end of his, uh, 
you know, project here. He, he reads, reads a few other notes where he describes him as uh, a father, you know, um, or, or a friend collecting a dead body from the empire at, after it's been tortured. And this is sort of the, the end of this uh, little experiment that, that our narrator is running with Colonel Joel. He says, now let us see what the next one says. See, there's only a single character. It is the barbarian character war. But it has other senses too. It could stand for vengeance. And if you turn it upside down like this, it can be made to read justice. Right? <laughs> the relationship between gen- vengeance and justice. There is no knowing which sense is intended. That is part of barbarian cunning.